Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Hopefully uh, things are going good in your neck of the woods and in your part of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you for listening. If you've not uh, listened before, uh, this is a podcast that really kind of talks about everything that has to do mostly with pharmacotherapy. And our goal here is to give you the absolute up-to-the-minute data that we can from an evidence-based perspective and really try to give you information that can help you at the bedside, whether you're a pharmacist, whether you're a prescriber, I don't think it matters. I think that we try to give you data that, that, that can really help you improve care for your patients. And, and so hopefully you'll find that as well. Today, we are going to be talking about kind of a hot off the press paper uh, dealing with depression. Now, as we all know, depression is extremely common. Major depressive disorder, uh, they say the lifetime prevalence of major depressive disorder in the United States approaches 20%. It's between 18 and 20%. So that means about one in five people that you run into will have an episode of major depression at some point during their lives. And though some patients can treat through it, if you will, or, or, or live through it, you know, there are probably untold hundreds of thousands of patients who are not, are not being treated with depression or treat themselves with, with things they shouldn't be, things like alcohol or, or things along those lines. And so, you know, it's very common. We all wish we had more mental health professionals in the United States. We, the sad fact is we don't. And so the bottom line is that, you know, if you're working in the trenches in primary care, whether that's working in a community pharmacy, whether that's being a family medicine physician, I, I don't think it really matters. Uh, you're going to be dealing with lots of depression in patients that you see. And um, unfortunately, you know, the medications we have absolutely work. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but the evidence is also pretty clear that rates to initial response are somewhere in the 60 to 70% range. Now, um, one of the things I always tell my students is that that's remission rates, right? So it's important to remember that the hurdle to get a drug approved for depression in the United States is actually not that high. All you really have to do is, is, is get a bunch of patients, give them the Hamilton depression uh, scale. If they meet the, the, the criteria for depression, divide them in half, give half of them a placebo, give half of them your medication, and do that scale again in 12 weeks. And if they, if your group has improved significantly over the other group that didn't get anything, that's you know, not all you need, but really the major hurdle you need to clear to get a drug approved for depression. So many psychiatrists I've talked to over the years have kind of argued that depression probably isn't what probably shouldn't be what the primary outcome is for depression studies, that we really should be looking at things like long-term uh, effect and stuff like that. But the bottom line is just that that's not what we have. And so because of that, you know, we know that in that first 12 weeks that, you know, no matter what antidepressant you kind of pick, it's kind of 60 to 70% response. And that data that goes clean back to the, the, the old star study done and that remissions only occur, you know, in kind of half of patients to 24 weeks. So, and we have very little data on long-term treatment of, of depression. And so, you know, the question becomes, you know, the current guidelines basically say, oh, diagnose major depression in somebody, we should start a non-MAO inhibitor type antidepressant and, you know, try to tailor that to their symptoms of depression. You know, what I usually tell my prescribers is that, you know, maybe pick a more energizing drug, say like a sertraline, which is kind of more of an energizing as 
SSRI for the patient who has, you know, kind of low affect, doesn't want to get out of bed, doesn't want to talk, that has no energy sort of stuff, and then maybe pick something like, say, escitalopram in the, in the patient who uh, is really jumpy, really nervous, can't sleep, stuff like that. So, because um, it tends to be more of a sedating SSRI. So, you know, basically that's it. As far as efficacy, it really probably doesn't matter. And so there have been several studies over the last, you know, 20 years or so that have said, well, maybe we should try a different uh, strategy. Maybe we should try rapid dose escalation. Maybe we should try augmentation. Um, and, and several medications are now FDA approved for augmentation, uh, especially with SSRI uh, treatment of depression. And those are mostly the second generation antipsychotics. Or, you know, maybe the easiest thing is combination therapy up front. So rather than trying to step therapy or, or something along those lines, does it make sense, especially in patients with severe depression, just to go ahead and start them on two antidepressants, theoretically, of course, with different mechanisms of action. So you wouldn't probably use two SSRIs, obviously, but maybe an SSRI and an SNRI or an SNRI and bupropion or, you know, bupropion and mirtazapine or something along those lines, those, those combinations. And so the paper we're looking at today, which was uh, just published in JAM Internal Medicine and pretty hot off the press was a meta-analysis that actually took a look at this. And so they note that combination antidepressants is pretty common in patients, especially who have multiple mental health uh, issues. And so the question is, you know, what data do we actually have starting out of the gate with two antidepressants with different modes of action actually improves clinical efficacy compared to just monotherapy? So this is a meta-analysis. And as always, meta-analyses can be kind of tricky to kind of to kind of work your way through. This seemed to be a pretty well done one. They, you know, nowadays there's pretty standard guidelines for the protocol and the procedure associated with doing a meta-analysis. And that's, of course, the, the PROSPERO and the PRISMA guidelines. This group did follow both those. There's kind of the standardized way to how are we going to pick our studies? How are we going to review our studies when we do our systematic review? And then, you know, how do we put all that information in, into the meta-analytic model, basically? So, and the Cochrane Collaboration does this and, and, and things like that. So they followed that. They did all that, which was good. They searched Medline, uh, Embase, uh, the Cochrane Registered Database, and, and everything else. And they were basically trying to find randomized controlled trials that met the following criteria. They had to have an intervention using a combination of two antidepressants. They didn't look at dose. They had to have a control group of patients taking antidepressant monotherapy. They had to be over age 18. They had to be diagnosed with standard operational criteria. They did not exclude, and I think this is important, patients with other uh, medical conditions for concomitant diagnoses of psychiatric disorders, because as we know, it isn't often just patients with depression. So they often have other issues. So that, that was good. However, they did uh, exclude studies focusing solely on bipolar disorder. And I think, again, that kind of makes sense because, again, bipolar disorder is a, a much more complex condition than uh, major depression, probably has a different way to approach things, including mood stabilizers and things like that. They also excluded trials of maintenance therapy, but they did look at, at first-line treatment and then trials of patients who had resistant to previous antidepressants as, as eligible. So for a meta-analysis, this was, this was pretty broad-ranging. I think they were really trying to take a look at the average patient that's going to walk into your office and, and complain of depressive symptoms or the average patient who's going to walk into your pharmacy saying, hey, I just got this new prescription for depression or gee, I think I'm depressed. What do you think sort of thing? The primary outcome criterion was treatment efficacy. And this was pretty much standard how almost all meta-analyses are done today by measuring the standard mean difference or SMD between the combination and monotherapy on an intention to treat basis. They had a number of secondary outcomes, including things like the Hamilton depression rating score, which again is one of the most common rating scales that's done in these in these studies. They also looked at response. So people had a, a, an improvement in 15% on their Hamilton depression score or on other scores as defined by the study authors. Now, one of the things they really wanted to take a look at, of course, was bupropion, because we now have some data that suggests that bupropion is a pretty good drug for augmentation in patients receiving SSRI. 
eyes. And there's been a couple of studies that have now looked in, and these are randomized control trials that have actually compared bupropion to second generation antipsychotics. And remember, those are the ones that are FDA approved for depression and have found that it's about as effective without all the, the anti- antipsychotic side effects, so without weight gain and, and extrapyramidal symptoms and stuff like that. So I think that's kind of key. There's been a couple of other small studies that have looked at other drugs, particularly the pre-synaptic alpha-1 drugs like uh, tra- trazodone or mirtazapine that have looked at that as well. But it seems like bupropion is the one that really has the data at this point. So they make a special call and say that's one of the things they really, really wanted to take a look at to see if there was this benefit in this meta-analysis of using bupropion up front in these patients. So again, these are all RCTs. And I think a well-done meta-analysis, they use the Cochrane risk of bias tool to, to, take a, uh, to take a look and see if there were sources of bias. And of course, that tool looks at things like, did they use randomization where patients allocated how much incomplete data? That's one of the problems, of course, in, in mental health studies is that a lot of times you have a lot of incomplete data and you have to use things like last observation carry forward and that can kind of mess things up as well. Sponsorship, you know, things like that. So they had to look at that. As far as the study themselves, their database, they attribute 4,000 articles. You always kind of feel bad for the residents and fellows who ends up being on these because it doesn't make you wonder how many they are. They're the ones who have to screen the titles and abstracts. In the end, of course, the vast, vast majority of these were excluded because they didn't report on combination treatment. They weren't RCTs, et cetera, et cetera. So in the end, they had 146 studies and seven new studies that they finally actually read all the way through. When it was all said and done, they had 39 studies as the basis for the analysis. And if you added up all the patients in this 39 studies, there were 6,700 patients and publication dates were wide ranging from 1977 to 2020. Now, you you may say, well, gee, we don't treat depression in 2020 the way we did in 1977. Remember that they did exclude uh, some of the older medications, some of the MAOs, uh, because they were looking at non-MAO inhibitor type studies. Most of these articles were published in English. 23 studies were double-blinded. Five studies were single-blind and 11 studies were open-label. So that can kind of throw throw a monkey wrench into the works, if you will. And then 21% of the studies, in other words, about over 50% that was an initial therapy, it was non-responders to initial therapy. So basically about half these studies, the first therapy they tried, about half the studies, these were patients who were non-responding to initial therapy. And so what did they find is, is the bottom line. So they, they combined all these with the meta-analytic techniques and what did they find? We, so in the end, they had 39 studies, 38 of these studies provided data on the primary uh, outcome. And when you look at that, the standard mean difference was 0.31 in favor of, of combination treatment. So in other words, uh, the mean difference was about 30% better in the, in the combination treatment compared to monotherapy. And that did reach statistical significance in this study. 31 of 38 studies actually had superior efficacy of combination treatment. So 82 of the total studies found that combination therapy was better than, than single therapy. Study heterogeneity, which is something you always want to look at in meta-analyses. So in other words, how big are the differences in, in the study populations was, as you might imagine, quite large because they looked at such a wide range number of patients. It actually was quite high. Does that mean it's not a good meta-analysis? No, it doesn't. What it just means is that the generalizability a little more difficult because they did look at such a wide ranging numbers. It's, it's harder to say, well, gee, can I apply the results of this meta analysis to the patient in front of me at the bedside, it's hard to do that when the heterogeneity of, of the studies was really high and they were looking at way different patient populations. So there's something to kind of keep in mind that the heterogeneity or I2 statistic was about 77%, which is considered high.
Combination therapy was associated with superior outcomes when analyses were restricted to patients with low risk of bias. So again, when they only looked at studies that had, had low risk of bias, that they had this SMD or, or standard uh, mean difference of about 0.29.3. Interestingly, it also worked among non-responder populations and when applied as first treatment. So it didn't matter in this meta-analysis whether they looked at studies that looked at initial therapy for depression or whether uh, they looked at non-responders, this combination uh, seemed to work pretty good. So now the $64 question is, which combinations or did it matter which which combinations? And the answer was, surprisingly, yeah, it did matter which uh, combinations. They found that the combination of a drug with an antagonist of a standard uh, antidepressant, SSRI, SNRI, et cetera, et cetera, with an antagonist of presynaptic alpha receptors, so again, trazodone or tazbine, was actually associated with a superior outcome relative to monotherapy. And in fact, in all 18 randomized controlled trials that looked at this combination, the SMD was 0.37. So again, you know, a, a significant uh, improvement and did statistical significance. And again, this was true if they had, were non-responders as opposed to first-line treatment. Also, as surprisingly, was that combination therapy that included bupropion was actually not associated with superior outcomes compared to monotherapy. And there were seven specific RCTs that looked at this, and actually, uh, when they added them all together, did not find that the benefit was there. In fact, the SMD was only 0.04. And then among non-responder populations, however, the bupropion combination was superior to monotherapy. So just in all comers, bupropion did not seem to benefit adding it on to standard initial therapy, but in non-responder populations, it did seem to benefit, though the benefits seem to be significantly less than in the overall cohort or in the patients who are receiving uh, presynaptic alpha therapy on top of their standard uh, antidepressant uh, therapy. They then basically made sure that that, and this is always a problem in, in meta-analyses, uh, sometimes you have one large study that showed a benefit or didn't show a benefit and a whole bunch of little teeny tiny studies that did or didn't show a benefit that are in, in opposition to that first study, but this first study is just so unbelievably large that it drives the outcomes of the entire meta-analysis. And again, that's one of the purposes of meta-analysis is so that we can use it as kind of a tiebreaker, as you guys know, but you also want to make sure that, you know, if there's a, a big flaw or, or issue with that first gigantic study, that it doesn't have undue influence. And so they actually removed each of the 38 studies in the primary outcome one at a time and ran the meta-analysis again. And, and this is something that's pretty commonly done, I think, in, in well-done meta-analyses, and it didn't matter. There was no single uh, randomized control trial that drove the outcomes of the, of the meta-analysis so much that removal of it changed the outcomes. They were actually very similar. They also looked at tolerability at patient dropout for treatment for any reason. And when they did that, uh, they actually found that the data for combination of monotherapy was actually similar, that there was no statistically significant difference in patients dropping out of treatment for any reasons or dropping out of treatment due to adverse effects between combination arms and monotherapy. So that's actually, I would be a, a serious concern, I think. And at least in this meta-analysis, they didn't find that. As you might imagine, not all these studies were well done when they took a look at, at methodologic rigor um, or a low risk of bias. About 38% of them met that. That's not that surprising, really, but I don't think invalidates the, the results of this. A heterogeneity we've already kind of talked about, again, was fairly large. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad meta-analysis or you can't use the data. It's just maybe sometimes difficult to apply to the, the individual patient that you're dealing with. And then like most meta-analyses, they did a funnel plot. And one of the things that is always a problem with, with meta-analyses is publication bias. Bottom line, 
line is that positive studies get to get to be published and negative studies are often never published. And so that's always been an issue with meta-analyses. And so they actually did publication bias and found that there was probably some publication bias, but when they took out some of those studies that may have publication bias associated with them, they still found the statistical benefit basically. So what the authors kind of concluded in this was that, you know, again, this, this meta-analysis suggested that in patients either who are presenting for their initial treatment for major depression or in patients who have non-responded to a therapy, that combination therapy kind of across the board seems to have a small but significant, I think, in improvement in uh, outcomes. And again, in this outcome was treatment efficacy measured by a standard mean difference. Um, and so did not seem to have a significant increase in side effects, which again, I think was kind of surprising to people. So their thoughts were that, uh, you know, especially in patients who you might think have more severe symptoms, it is certainly not unreasonable, even though guidelines and I think, you know, general standard of care as you start one and see where you go from there, is it may be reasonable reasonable to consider a combination therapy. Now, of course, which combination therapy is as important, and, and I think surprising in the study was that they did not find an improvement to be appropriate on, because again, we've seen that in some uh, studies looking at adding it on to SNRIs in patients who are having partial responses to SSRIs, that there was a benefit. So kind of surprising that they found that. Yeah, I would say that in the end, it seems that augmentation may have a benefit, may have a role. Based on this, I think that again, trazodone or mirtazapine may be you know, the ones you might want to consider if you do that. Both drugs, of course, have their own issues. Trazodone, of course, is, is well known as a sleeper. In fact, I probably use it as a sleeper a hundred times and more than I ever use it as an antidepressant. I've always had pretty good luck with it as a sleeper in patients, you know, and so again, you know, yeah, maybe that, maybe the patient who can't sleep, maybe, you know, having a, having a low dose of trazodone on top of that might be reasonable in the patient who's not eating or, or things along those lines, or again, sleep may be an issue. Again, mirtazapine may be a role as well. I think in the elder I think you do you want to use caution with both those medications. They both have anticholinergic effects. And so they're going to be at higher risk of falls, higher risk of neurocognitive effects of those medications as well. I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're both on the beers list, though. I don't have that memorized. I think what this basically says is, is that uh, I'm not sure I'm ready to start every single patient who, who I ever see who has depression on dual therapy. But certainly if you have a patient who's younger, certainly have a patient who maybe isn't on a lot of other medications and has severe depression, I don't think based on this information that it's, it's way out of the park and way out of, you know, of standard of care to consider combination therapy in them. And, you know, I think, you know, again, trying to take a look at their specific depressive symptoms and trying to target those with, with what you're doing. Again, even though the study didn't show a benefit bupropion, you could argue that in someone who has, you know, very low affect symptoms that bupropion is a, is a reasonable drug. Also, we have at least a little data, it's not great data, that bupropion may help ameliorate uh, SSRI-induced sexual dysfunction. So again, if that's a real issue for the patient, uh, you might be treating multiple uh, issues with, with, with one medication. So, so very interesting meta-analysis. Again, I, you know, when well done, they say meta-analyses can be as good as our, our randomized controlled trials. And I certainly don't want to wade into that argument that's been going on for 30 years. But I think that, that this information does give us some, uh, some data to suggest that even though guidelines, and I think standard of care suggest monotherapy for all is the way to go, that I think you can, in individual cases, consider combination therapy out of the gate or in patients who have said they failed one antidepressant and consider combination therapy with them as well. So that's it for this week of, of Game Changers. Thank you for listening again. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thanks for listening then. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. 
and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.